Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We're living in a broken world, and the headlines certainly make that clear. And the solution is singular. I know you know, but it's good to hear it because you're not going to hear it on the cable news networks. Though they'll dance around Christian topics, it's important for us to realize the solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless people's hearts are changed, uh, we have no hope, zero hope in this world. And Genesis 6 reminds us of the deterioration of society when people's hearts are not penitent before God and they're not trusting in God. And so as we get to the second to last installment of our study through soteriology, I think it would be good for us to spend a little bit of time thinking about how that gospel gets transmitted and and communicated from those who have it to those who need it. And and that's critically important in our day, and it should be uh, urgently on our minds as we look at uh, the things that seem to be collapsing all around us in our society. Knowing everything's right on schedule is somewhat comforting. We know the forecast has been bleak, but it's important for us to recognize that what we need to do is to hold out the word of life to our lost and broken world. That's the only solution, and it's only going to take place a person at a time. So let's spend a little bit of time thinking this through and starting at the beginning, and that is thinking about the presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament. That'd be the important place for us to start tonight so that we could understand uh, some of the changes as we move through this canonically and, and chronologically, thinking about Old Testament, New Testament, and today. Now, important for us to think about the gospel from the Old Testament. It has been a conservative evangelical error, and it's been well documented that we've misunderstood some of the things going on in the Old Testament as it relates to the good news of saving people and having their sins forgiven. So we want to make sure that we state this very clearly when it comes to salvation and the Old Testament. The problem has always been what it is today. It is identical. The problem that the gospel is solving is invariable between testaments or epics or millennia. There's no difference. The problem has always been the same. And that begins with, for us, the fact that we have a God who is completely in charge, has full authority and sovereignty over our lives, and he happens to be completely different than us. He's described by the angels as holy, holy, holy. There's something distinct and separate about him in every way, not just ontologically, his being, but in his character and his ethic and his standard. And certainly that's an issue that we begin the Bible with that gives his credentials in Genesis 1-1 that he's the creator. He is in charge by virtue of him being the maker of all things. And as I often jokingly say, which I'm sure I stole from someone, when you get your own universe, you can be in charge, but you're not. Uh, As Mormon theology, I realize, for those of you that know the cults, but that's not going to happen. God is the only God there is, and that God is in charge by virtue of the fact that he made us. And so the Bible starts with that, to put everything in perspective, to get the arrangement of characters in the org chart in our mind very clear. God is a holy God who is in charge, and he's able then to make the rules, which he does right out of the gate. The second chapter, he tells his creation, made in his image, listen, there's something that you cannot do. You cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of 
the knowledge of good and evil. You can't do it, and I can make those rules because I'm in charge. Uh, This is my creation. This is my planet. I can do what I want. That message is reiterated from cover to cover in the Bible. It it hits a place where we start to sympathize with Job in these middle books of poetry in the Old Testament, and we start saying, this isn't right. This isn't fair. God breaks in the scene, as you know, at the end of the book of Job and says, who are you to speak to me the way you are about things? Or as Jeremiah said, I mean, we've got to remember God is the potter, and we're simply the clay and the pots. And so we've got to get very clearly in our minds in the Old Testament that the problem that we have needing salvation begins with the fact that we don't make the rules, we're not in charge, and we don't have authority over our own lives. Secondly, we've got a problem because we can all look at our history, both in our family tree and in our personal lives, of rebellion. Rebellion against God and his standards and what he has commanded. And of course, you know the story. We go from the first chapter to the second chapter to the third chapter, and we have in the headings of our Bible the fall of mankind. People rebel. And in in one verse, we've got the apex of it, that Eve takes the fruit of the tree, she eats it, she gives some to her husband who's with her, and he ate it, and they become willful, rebellious people against God's standard. That's the problem. So we've got a holy God who makes the rules, people that should be subject to his rules, breaking those rules. That creates the problem. And furthermore, God is a God of justice. God is a God who must, because of his goodness, be faithful to his own sense of justice. And it's not just the sense of justice, but the reality of justice. And he said that when he set up the rules in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. There are going to be consequences if you break my rules. For in the day that you eat of its fruit, you shall surely die. And that, of course, as we explained many times, is on multiple levels. The level relationally, uh, we like to call that spiritual death, but relational death, I like to call it for clarity's sake. And certainly biological death began at that particular point, compounded by the fact that they were excluded from the garden and the tree of life. But those just punishments began uh, because they broke the rules. And then the second half of Genesis 3 starts to describe some of the penalties that come before their biological death. And we call it the curse. But the Lord God says in verse 14, because you have done this, and we get a long series of verses of things that are going to be problematic in our world because of the rebellion of mankind. So God is going to, in this world, make things what they are. So that when the New York Daily Times says, you know, God can't fix the problem, God's not listening, stop praying and all that. I'm sure you've read those headlines today. When this kind of stuff happens in our rebellious world, it's exactly what God said would happen. We need to be saying to our lost world, the things happening in our world is simply God keeping his promises, the chaos, the the violence, the, the death. Uh, all of this is exactly what he promised. And as I wanted to add an addendum to the New York Daily News headline today, uh, or light last night, you know, uh, God can't or won't fix the problem and, and, and it needs the rest of the sentence uh, because we're not repentant. We're not responding uh, rightly to even his remedy, which is the gospel, which we're here to talk about tonight. Anyway, I'm off on current events. Sorry. Number four, the problem then is... I suppose in a sentient or emotional, existential way, it kind of resides in our gut in terms of guilt because we desire to be absolved. We don't want consequences for our rebellion. And that's poetically seen in Genesis 3 verse 8 when it says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So I don't want to face the music. I don't want to face the judge. I don't want to have responsibility for my sin. And that's the basic problem. 
We've got a holy God who is in charge, makes the rules. We break the rules. God is just. He must punish, and we'd like to get out of the punishment. That's never changed. It's, it's in the first three chapters of the Bible, and we see it whether we're talking about the middle monarchy of Israel or the post-exilic period or whether we're moving through the very end of, of the Old Testament in Malachi. These principles do not change. They're invariable, and it is the problem that the gospel uh, comes to solve. Letter B, the solution to these problems is also grounded in something that is timeless, something that precedes the fall, which may be, for some speculative theologians, part of the reason for the fall, and that is that there are aspects of God's character that will be highlighted and put on display that we will praise him for those attributes in eternity because of the fall and the restoration and salvation. The solutions bound up in, if you want to put it in one word, love. God is a loving God. God is a God who has a solution, and from the very beginning, of even making more specific rules for the people of Israel. He then reiterates in from Exodus chapter 20. He begins to elaborate in, in chapter 34, repeating the Ten Commandments, and he says that God is a God keeping steadfast love, that great Hebrew word hesed, this, this faithful, enduring, persistent character of God for thousands of people, that is, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So I've got a problem. I don't want to face the music. I don't want the justice of God. And the hope that I have, the solution is bound up in the fact that God happens to have an aspect of who he is, to put it in those crass terms, that will solve the problem. There's something that he wants to do as it relates to the problem that I bear in my fallen state. And because of his love, uh, we can hope to see, as we do in the scripture, the outgrowth of the solution. Well, you'll see three words connected. The foremost and central is the word love, but you'll also see this other word often throughout the Old Testament, and that is God's mercy. Mercy, specifically, if we were to be technical and, 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 and distinguishing from other words, is the idea of God not giving what we deserve. We saw that from the beginning. The day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Well, he's going to make sure that that death is in stages. Matter of fact, he's going to make sure that they are not stuck in life forever in a state of alienation. Kicking them out of the garden was an act of grace because he removed them from the perpetual state of life, from eating the tree of life, so that he could do something in redemption to redeem them after their death. More on that later, but the idea of God's grace and mercy giving people opportunity not to have the full incurrence of their, to incur the full weight of their penalty immediately. And we see that all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, we're thinking of specifically in Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, uh, when the psalmist recognizes the problem of sin, calls out to God, one of the things he's going to focus on is God is merciful. And he says to God, God, remember, you're merciful. You're a merciful God. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your hesed, your steadfast love, your faithful love. They've been from of old. That's who you are. The solution to my sin problem is going to be rooted in that foundational attribute. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The idea of mercy. I would like God not to punish me the way that I deserve to be punished and to restrain that, even to postpone that, is an act of his mercy. Withdrawing from us what we rightly deserve, God's mercy. And just to complete this triad, we'll use the word I already slipped out in my discussion of mercy, and that's the word grace. He's more than merciful, not giving us the penalty we deserve. Grace, of course, is he's willing to give benefit where we don't deserve it. 
It's one thing not to be punished for the sins I've committed. It's even a more loving thing for God to grant me benefits that I have not earned. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17 says it well, speaking of the rebellion in the desert when people rose up against Moses and said, well, we're going to pick our own leader and we're going to go back to Egypt. Nehemiah said they refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. God pulled them out of Egypt, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They should have known God's going to save us. God's going to get us where we need to go in the promised land. But they were stiff. They, were, they had stiffened necks, right? But they stiffened their necks and, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, there's our word, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So really, if we were to do this graphically, we'd put love at the center, and two big important Old Testament words that grow out of that are the idea of his mercy, restraining punishment, and his grace, giving what we don't deserve which according to the law is something that shouldn't happen, right? In the court system, you're not supposed to absolve the guilty. You're not supposed to reward the guilty. You're supposed to punish the guilty. Well, God is so loving that he wants to somehow make it possible so that we don't incur the penalty of our sin to satisfy his own justice. That's the foundation in the Old Testament. And then, of course, as they move out of Egypt, they're given a ceremonial system of worship that he would rescind come New Testament times. But all of those worshipful acts under the direction of the Levites, Aaron's priestly line was all to symbolize how God would go about solving the problem. And so we have the solution in the Old Testament, but we only have it symbolized in the Old Testament. And of course, we covered this earlier, and just for quick review, important for us to remember how that worked. And that worked in this way, that you would take something that symbolized innocence, and in this case, a a harmless animal, a a sheep or, or a goat, and you would have them slaughtered. That picture of killing the the innocent. The wages of sin is death, but death will then go to one who doesn't deserve it. And it started in Exodus 12 with the Passover. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You don't want one that's got a problem. You want a picture of purity and and innocence. It shall be a male, a year old, so just a pup, if you will. This this lamb that that, is, is, is harmless and young. Uh, and you can take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it. So you're going to take this animal on the first day of the month. You're going to keep it until the 14th day of the month. So for two weeks, your family's going to live with this docile animal. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, then they shall go and kill their lambs at twilight. So as the sun is going down and the darkness is descending on the land, we go out and kill this lamb, this innocent animal, as a picture of God's atonement. That's how the solution was symbolized, at least a part of it. The second part is, when you do this kind of thing, not just with the first sacrifice of the Passover, but with the institution of the entire sacrificial system, you're supposed to remember what's happening there is a transference in that you are going to come out the other side of this symbolic picture as someone who is now symbolized as accepted, that you are guilty, but you're accepted. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, this is the book that describes all the various kinds of of Old Testament sacrifices. And it says if it's a burnt offering, the ultimate offering that's burned up, not even the priest can eat it. It's burned up completely for God. Uh, If it's an offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. That's always the picture of innocence. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So I want to go and symbolically in this worship center ceremonially meet with God that he may be accepted before the Lord. So I know the end result of this symbolic thing that we're doing is that I'm going to leave feeling accepted with the one I'm meeting with, God, my creator. Kicked out of the garden, guilty because of his justice, I should be condemned, but 
I want to go away, walking away, having a sense that God accepts me. That's the picture. I'm guilty, but I'm accepted. The innocent dies. The guilty are accepted. How does that happen? With a picture of the transfer of my guilt. I want my guilt on the innocent so that I, as a guilty person, can be accepted. That's the next verse, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 1. This picture, this symbol, is, is typified by the worshiper putting his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him in his place. That little tiny word we looked at when we studied the atonement weeks back, that is so important in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, to describe the substitution in place of. So I am being accepted before God by the atonement, the covering of my sin, taking place as I symbolically say, here's an innocent, take my guilt, put it on the head of that innocent animal, kill that animal, and symbolically I'm getting the picture. Innocent dies, guilty is accepted because my guilt is laid on the innocent. That's the picture they went through every single week. They had that image from the very beginning. And God symbolized how he would solve the problem. Not enough to say, as the moderns say, hey, if God is loving, he'll just forgive sin. Well, that leaves a gaping hole in his character because we have no way to deal with his justice. Even the Muslims that are out there trying to, trying to kill us here in Southern California, you realize when you, when you debate with them or you share the gospel with them, there's no, there's no atonement for sin. There's no way to get right with God. Their, their hope is that God is merciful. God is loving. God is merciful, so he's going to accept my best efforts. And that's the problem with every other system that does not include some transference of guilt to the innocent. And, and Christianity that was set up by Judaism is the only worldview and system of thought that solves this problem. All right, You've, we've experienced that. We've, we've studied that. But that's a summary from the Old Testament of how it was symbolized. Now, if I want this to happen for me, I'd like to be accepted. How do I... How do I do it? What are the imperatives? What are the commands? What are the directives? If I am recognizing I need this, and so I'm assuming that in this case, I'm penitent. I feel sorry for my sin. I have a sense of acceptance and responsibility for my sin. I want somehow God to take my sin and deal with it on someone else so that I can be accepted though I'm guilty. Okay, what are the imperatives for me? Well, they'll look familiar to you. You have to turn from your sin. We call that repentance in our language. And the idea in, in Hebrew is expressed with the word shub. And in New Testament, it's metanoia, means the same thing to turn. And the aspects here of turning are all over the Old Testament. And we need to look for it and see it and recognize it's not just I go through the motions of the, of the sacrifices and I'm accepted. Then you're a Catholic, if you will, who believes in uh, ex opere operato. Remember that Latin phrase? Smile at me if you remember that Latin phrase. That means that if I just do the act, then the working is in the act itself. See, and some people in evangelicalism, and I started out with this warning, that if we're not thinking carefully about Old Testament salvation, you'll start to say, well, they went through the motions of the sacrifice. Now you sound like a Catholic that says, if I just get my kid baptized, it washes away his mortal sin, and he becomes a child of God. No, he was sleeping through the ceremony and grunted and cried a few times, but he, God did his work because the authorized priest there did something to him, and that makes him right with God. And evangelicals have taught in our train and, 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 and spiritual heritage, hey, the sacrificial system saved them. God did that through that. That's not the case. You had to come with a penitent heart, one that is ready to turn to God. And to turn to God is to turn from sin. First Kings chapter 8, verses 48 through 50. After the temple was built, they were dedicating it. It was very clear that this symbolized the meeting place of God. Now not a tent, but it's permanent. And, and Solomon says, if they repent... 
with all their mind and all their heart. So this is not just tacit. This is not just, you know, trite. It's not surface. It's sincere. It's with all of my being. I'm sincerely repenting. Then the, the prayer was, which was the system. This is what God set up. He was just reflecting God's principles here. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place. Hear, the, hear it from your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. What's their cause? Well, they're coming with sin on their hands. They want that sin removed. They'd like acceptance and favor from you and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you and grant them compassion. So how do I get that compassion, that love, that mercy, that grace from God? Well, yeah, there was a sacrificial system, but that just symbolized how God was going to eventually do this. But the picture was, in your heart, what's the imperative? Repent. You got to turn from your sin. If you don't, here's the other side. One is the carrot, right? This is the great thing. You'll get the compassion of God. If you repent, here's the stick, right? This makes you motivated if you don't. Psalm 7, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge. There's his justice. You can't get around it. And a God who feels indignation every day. Do you believe that? You have to believe that God looks at this planet and feels and senses indignation, righteous anger every day. It's called the wrath of God. If a man does not repent, God is ready to punish him. God will wet his sword. He'll sharpen it up. And he has bent and readied his bow, pulled back his bow in that picture of warfare. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons. God's ready, making his arrow, his arrows fiery shafts. So he's ready to bring retribution on those if they don't repent. Because God is just, and his justice will be satisfied. Somehow in the Old Testament, I knew it would be a transfer of my guilt to the innocent. That's symbolized in my worship. But I know this, I've got to turn from my sin. I've got to repent. So that was the imperative throughout the Old Testament. Those are two uh, representative verses for you to think about. Also, they needed to trust in God. We call that faith in our language, the idea of trusting God. Now, see it implicit here in this passage, Psalm 32, 5 and 6. Great passage about a penitent heart coming in the light of their own guilt and sin and getting right with God. I acknowledge my sin to you, David says. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How are you so confident in that? That if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's implicit. Verse 6, therefore, not just me, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Right? There's a time when if you don't repent, he's wet his sword, he's bent his bow, he's lit those arrows, and he will bring retribution on the unrepentant. But the penitent need to trust that they can call on God in his time of favor and opportunity, and God is going to let himself be found by us. He'll forgive us. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I will not pay the penalty of my sin. You are a hiding place for me. It's back to the first person testimony now. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Context in, in Psalm 32, penitent David in his sin, thinking about God's forgiveness. We're not just talking about getting out in warfare and winning a battle. This is about the problem of sin that we saw in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's all rooted in the character of God, but the directive is you better trust God's a God who is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. And he calls everyone to trust God that he'll do, he'll do that because he's done it for him. Isaiah 30, verse 15, to see these put together. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, returning there, that's the, the word to, to, to repent. Repentance and rest, you shall be saved. There's the two pictures of turning from sin, trusting in God. Trust God, rest in him, you'll be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. He's holding out that opportunity for their salvation, both politically and militarily and spiritually. The problem is they weren't willing. Uh, but that's the offer. Trust me. Repentance and faith, we call it. The imperatives haven't changed. 
You ask, what was God calling guilty sinners to do in the Old Testament? Don't answer first with offer sacrifices. That's not the right answer. The right answer is in a penitent heart to repent of your sins, turning to God and putting your faith in God that he'll forgive you. Trust him that the, the, the deliverance is going to be granted and the rising waters that you have rightly deserved will not reach you. That's the picture, repentance and faith. Letter E, well, what about sin? How was it paid for? I get this question all the time on my Tuesday radio call-in show. How did God deal with sin in the Old Testament? Well, if you're looking at what God called people to do, it's the same thing, repentance and faith. Now, was there a mechanism of worship? Yes, sacrificial system. Did it symbolize something yet to come? It did. But if it symbolized what was yet to come, then how did God actually do this? That's the question people always ask. I know this, number one, only Christ can substitute for sin. I know that. The Bible is explicit and clear on that. Hebrews chapter 10, in thinking of the Old Testament system, said it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't solve the problem. So consequently, then, when Christ came into the world, he says, speaking poetically here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. I know he's quoting the Old Testament, but the picture there is that's not what we're going to deal with, although he did request them. He, he wants them. But there's something better now. A body, he says, you've prepared for me. So God is going to, in the second person of the Godhead, take on human form and provide the sacrifice. And it won't be an animal because the animals couldn't do it. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. So he is going to take pleasure and actually do the transference of guilt in the death of his body. That's the picture in the New Testament. So I know that, that only Christ can substitute for sin. Got it. Okay, then how was it done? Now, this is my little illustration I came up with, and have you've heard it ad nauseum, I know, but it's a good way, I think, for us in our day to think about the difference between credit and debit. The idea of sins being forgiven, most people are asking the question, was it the sacrificial system? It's like a Roman Catholic saying, is it the baptism of my child that saves him? The answer is no. Sacrificial system did not save anyone. It couldn't save anyone. It was an act of obedience, and you should do it, but really the transference of my guilt was going to take place in space and time when Christ comes, lives for me, and dies for me. But when I think about how they were saved, there's only one way to be saved, in Christ, Christ's blood. So how are they saved? All I can do logically is answer the question with, their sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. Abraham was counted as righteous 2,000 years before Christ came because of the payment of Christ. Well, where was it? Well, in space and time, it was the dollars weren't in the account yet, but they were there in the sense that God said, I'm going to credit to you the righteousness of Christ beforehand. That's what Romans chapter four is all about. The payment of Christ takes care of Abraham's sin by way of illustration, 2000 years before Christ, because God was willing to credit righteousness to him, but that we know in the book of Romans was only provided in Christ. From the New Testament, if you want to think purely in terms of space and time, we get that as debit. Payment in the Old Testament was credited. Now, I want to throw this in because someone may quote it to me at some point. So I want, to, I want to let you know I'm not ignorant of it. But it is a problemed passage. It's only problemed because the grammar is not clear. And it, it's clear in your English text, I know. But I need to at least let you know it's not crystal clear in, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Some people will point to this passage and say, hey, you know what? Christ was crucified or slain, as it's translated here, before the foundation of the world. Now, if you look this up in the King James Bible, you look it up in an NIV, that's how it's going to read. Everyone whose name was not written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's how it reads. Now, you're going to say, well, wouldn't it be clear by the Greek sentence? Here's the problem with Greek. 
Greek is a language that is highly inflected. That means the, the endings and, and the prefix and the suffix, they change that help me know what role that it plays in the sentence. Now, when it comes to the phrase, from the foundation of the world, that's really not the point of the passage. So the Greek sentence puts that at the end. That's at the end of the sentence. The order of a Greek sentence really just shows me priority, oftentimes, usually, priority of what we want to put up front. Because I can look at the endings, the prefix and the suffix, and I can say that's going to tell me whether it's the direct object or the subject of the sentence and all that. We don't do that in English, but they do it in Greek, and they did it in Greek. So when you read this sentence in Greek, you don't really know, because of a grammatical nuance that I won't get into, what that is qualifying from the foundation of the world. Now, that phrase is the phrase that is a translator has to decide. Does this, there's two verbs here. It has been written, that perfect tense verb, it either qualifies that, which are ESV translators that said, we think it's qualifying that. And one of the reasons they think that is because a cross-reference over there in Revelation 17, 18, that's the only way you can read it. That says, the dwellers in the earth whose names have not, not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. So they go, well, the cross-reference says that. So because it's repeated in Revelation, it must be that before the foundation of the world qualifies written. Yeah, but it's not grammatically certain. This other word, slain, or slaughtered, literally, is the word that also could grammatically qualify it. It actually is right next to it in the Greek sentence. That's why King James translators, hundreds of years ago, they said, well, that's the decision we're going to make. And that has been a pretty traditional translation in a lot of uh, translations, although the Net Bible and a lot of the newer Bibles, the CEV, the ESV, they take written as the word that it's qualifying. Do you follow this? Why do I bring that up? Because if you were to read this the way it's read in some translations, which is allowable, and I, and I looked at commentators who basically are split on this, about 55-45, 55 in favor of actually slain, I think because of the long history of English translations that qualify slain. Then they're going to read it this way, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And they're going to say, see there, from God's perspective, that payment has always been there. Do you see the difference? So in their minds, they say, it's as good as done. And in a sense, we could say philosophically and theologically, we can speculate, well, of course it's good as done. God had planned it. He had decreed it. It was going to happen. That's true. But this is a passage that's often pointed to, and I only put it up there and show you the problem with it because um, someone's going to think of it and give it to me. Was that clear as mud? Was that helpful? No, not really. And, and now look what's another slide there that doesn't have the right word, credited. See, we're friends here. I can just edit my stuff right in front of you. No problem. All right, number two, presenting the gospel in the gospels. You know what I mean by that. Presenting the message that gets people saved within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what I mean by that. Now, we got the Old Testament we've looked at, and basically what I hope you've clarified is the sacrificial system did not save people in the Old Testament. What saved people in the Old Testament was God's love, mercy, and grace. How did he do it? When people were penitent, turning from their sin, repentance, and trusting in God's forgiveness, that he would forgive and do what he says. That repentance and faith saved them. What about in the Gospels? How does the message in any way get adjusted in the New, in the new uh New Testament, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus was here during his earthly ministry. Well, the only way to understand that is to start to understand this very big can of worms in theology, and that is the idea of the kingdom. This is the emphasized discussion from Christ's teaching from the beginning of his ministry. Matter of fact, the beginning of his public ministry starts this way, the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus' public ministry begins with this. His public ministry begins with this description in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, he came, Jesus did, into Galilee, 
proclaiming the gospel. There's our word. This would be an interesting verse to understand. The gospel of God. What did he say? What was the message? How'd you get right with God? How is, what's the good news? I got a problem. I need it solved. What did he say? He said this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I got words now I'm very familiar with that if you want to get right with the living God and get your sin problem taken care of, and you want to be an act, have access to the benefit of love, mercy, and grace, then what you need is you need to repent and trust. Now, here he says, listen, the kingdom of God is the topic on the table. And that you see, if you look for it in your Bible software, all over the Gospels. Now, the coming of the kingdom of God, number one. We need to realize, let's start with the word God, that I hope is easiest and won't take any proof. The God of the Old Testament was clearly understood by the recipients of that phrase. The kingdom of God, when Jesus starts preaching about the kingdom of God, hey, I know who you're talking about. That God of the Old Testament, the God in charge, the God who has, makes all the rules, the God who is holy, they understood that. No problem. Number two, the kingdom foretold in the Old Testament was also understood. Now, if you go out and preach this message today and they have no understanding of the Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom, they're not going to understand this verse, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. They won't know what we're talking about. They're going to start to inject their own meaning into that. So what we need is to think, now, what did they understand the kingdom to be? Very important. So let's think back to the uh, Old Testament promises. Isaiah, one of the best books. I mean, it's all over the Old Testament. But these prophets leading up to the Babylonian captivity said so many things about the promise of the kingdom. And they did that because the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises regarding what he was going to do under this banner of kingdom was needed at a time when we saw Asher Bonner Paul and, and, and the Assyrian kings and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kings coming up to conquer them. And they thought, well, is God done with us? And so there are a lot of promises about the kingdom coming. There'd be a time fulfilled. Now, this we always quote it at, at um, Christmas. And the reason we do is that in the immediate context, much like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there's no way to look at what you read on the page and say, clearly, we're only talking about the figure that's in the text. And I quote those two passages because we're talking about the king of Tyre, for instance, and we're clearly talking about something that cannot possibly fit the king of Tyre who lives with sandals and a crown on his head. We're clearly talking about the fall of Satan. And we know those passages because they have words like cherub and the angel, that, that uh, the guarding cherub and, and the one who is perfect in, in eternity in the Garden of Eden. Those things can only apply to the, to the enemy who's fallen, the angel, the archangel who fell. Here we got the same thing. We do have a historic child that's born, but these things cannot possibly refer to him. So there's this telescopic reference to the coming kingdom. And it says this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Clearly not the kid in the context that previously was discussed. We're talking about someone who's everybody, all the weight of the government is going to be upon this one. And he shall be called. What are we going to call him? Great king? No. Wonderful counselor, which has a rich Old Testament meaning. Mighty God. Now you're really speaking blasphemy. Everlasting father. Blew my mind with that. How can a kid that's born to us possibly have this divine title and prince of peace? Now, prince they understood as the coming one, the child of David, the one who would sit on the throne in the kingdom. They got that idea. So that was familiar. But to call him wonderful counselor who would guide us like a shepherd, mighty God and everlasting father, those are problematic unless we understand something of the hindsight of the New Testament that God himself would come. And that is clear, by the way, if you look for it in the book of Isaiah. But they said, okay, so I've got this one coming, this perfect king, this perfect prince. 
And he's going to come, and he's going to be born, and the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And the increase of his government, the expansion of his government, and of his peace, there'll be no end. You mean there's going to be world peace? Yes. And one leader? Yes. And the government's going to be his, this prince. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's going to sit on this throne to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth for at least 80 years. No, forevermore. So we have a promise of a coming king. That's the Messiah, the prince. The prince is going to rule in the kingdom. And the promise is that this unique one who's got divine names is going to be literally sitting on the throne of David, ruling over this thing, a kingdom that's going to spread over the entire earth. Okay? Wow. That's pretty big. That's how they understood it. Let's think through a few of these things. And I wish I could take you to the context of all these. You'll have to either trust me or do your homework on them. But the Messiah, this prince, this one that has these divine titles, ends up being that very specific king. We saw that, I suppose, in Isaiah 9 clearly enough. But when you start looking at the specific promises in the meat of Isaiah, in the middle of Isaiah, you see them now forecasting the coming kingdom where they could physically put their eyes on a bodily person who would be called the king and he would be described in perfection and glory or in this verse with beauty. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. He is going to save the penitent, those who trust God, those who have repented. He is going to save them. Now, clearly there are political overtones in this passage, but God is going to speak later in the book about the real salvation that moves beyond that. It includes it, but it moves beyond it to our problem of sin and forgiveness. Uh, The Lord is our king. Now, here again, there's confusion because if Yahweh, which those letters will indicate for you, we're talking about God's proper name, is our king, how can Yahweh be our king? Well, now it starts to harmonize with Isaiah 9. Everlasting Father, we get that. Okay, Uh, mighty God. Okay, I can see it can only be Yahweh who can be this one. This triune God is the king. My eyes can see him, the incarnate one. He'll save us. He's going to consummate history. We should have seen that from, from Isaiah 9. His government is going to spread over the whole earth. And when he is revealed and when he comes, the entire world, all flesh, will see it. Everyone's going to see it. This is going to be a global reality. Everyone born, everyone living uh, is going to see it. And then he's going to bring to bear the results of the unpenitent, and he's going to bring to bear the blessing and favor of the penitent. He's going to reward and he's going to punish. Uh, chapter 40. His reward is with him when the king comes and his recompense is before him. Now again, it'd be great for you to do the study on all of this. Matter of fact, here's a side note for you. It'd be great for you to study what John the Baptist preaches in Luke chapter 3. If you were with us way back then when we were preaching through Luke 3, the comparison of the middle chapters of Isaiah with what John the Baptist preaches. John the Baptist preaches straight out of Isaiah. The ideas of Christ being the king who is the prince the one who's going to solve the problems, both politically, for them, of Rome, people of stammering tongue, they're speaking in Latin, and he's thinking of these things. And so he's waiting for the Messiah to be the king, to save the penitent, both spiritually and politically, to consummate world history, to bring rewards for the penitent, and to bring punishment for the unpenitent, impenitent, I should say. And then one more thing that they often missed, he's going to solve the sin problem. And that's the greatest chapter in all of Isaiah, in our opinion, because we understand Christologically what's going on here. We, like sheep, have gone astray. That's the problem. Started in Genesis 3. We've turned every one of us to his own way. The Lord, though, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you were a Jew going through those symbolic ceremonial rituals every single week, you get the idea of laying guilt and iniquity on on an innocent. That's the picture every week in worship. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, even though he was perfect, without any guilt, no sin in his mouth, and put him to grief. Why? Like the animal, the innocent animal. When his soul makes him an offering of guilt. Wait a minute. The innocent dies as a guilt offering? Yes, for the guilty, 
and he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. There's a veiled reference to the resurrection of this, this, this one who solves our sin problem. That's an important list. Those ideas of king, saving, consummating, rewarding, punishing, solving the sin problem. Now, when you said kingdom, Jesus steps on the scene and says, the, the time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is at hand. Now, you better make sure you got these two things the Old Testament always talked about, repentance and faith, trust in God, repent of your sins. They got that. They understood. We understand what that we're, we're dealing with here. The Messiah is going to do all these things he's promised. Okay. How was the response adjusted? Here's where some of the old dispensationalists got messed up, thinking, well, they were saved differently in the Old Testament. No, they weren't. They were saved by the credit, I'll get it right now, the credit of the coming sacrifice of Christ, which you might argue from Revelation 13 was in God's mind a done deal before the world was even founded, and they had to respond in repentance and faith, but there was an adjustment. The adjustment was, prime. well, let's start with the obvious. The imperatives didn't change. Repentance and faith were the same. You have to trust, you have to rest, you have to believe God, you have to repent. Those were the same. Those didn't change, repentance and faith. What did change, or didn't change, it was adjusted, was the focal point of your faith. The focal point of your faith was to move from God, who was receiving your offerings, to now the offering itself. You no longer now look to the Father as the one who is, is the mechanism of forgiveness, but the Son now becomes the sacrifice who dies in our place. For instance, and it's a great verse. I'm so glad it's in the Bible. It is so helpful to tie up so much Old Testament theology. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Apostle writes of John the Baptist. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now again, the new Christian who's not even familiar with the Old Testament, this doesn't have the, the rich depth that it should have for all of you in this room right now. The sacrificial system of a lamb dying, starting with the, 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 uh, the, the commands of Exodus 12 in the Passover feast, I am supposed to transfer guilt, Leviticus 1, to this animal. He dies so that I can be accepted at the tent of meeting and all of that forgiveness and grace and mercy would come to me. Now, here comes the Messiah, Isaiah 53. Here he comes. He's the Lamb of God. God's going to take our iniquity and lay it on him. So when it came to the gospel of the New Testament, even in the beginning of the gospels itself, the focal point of forgiveness became trusting in Christ. The point of our faith was clarified, and it was the person of Christ. And here's another thing that was confusing. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison there in Jordan? It wasn't called Jordan, but that's where he was put, Herod's summer palace in Jordan across the east side of the Dead Sea. He wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. Remember that weird passage? Well, tell, he sent messengers. Tell us if Jesus is the Christ or not, or should we look for another? Does that disturb you, that passage? Why? Come on. I mean, you're, you're related. You've preached. You've baptized him. You should know he's the Messiah. Why is he questioning that? Because if he's thinking about Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah chapter 33, Isaiah chapter 40, he's thinking of those triumphant issues of the consummation of history, of saving them from their enemies, of bringing recompense and reward. And he, the good guy, is in prison. He's thinking maybe he's not, maybe he's not the guy. We, we t- tell us, should we be looking for someone else here? He's wondering and questioning that. That's because he is going to work on Isaiah 53 in the first coming. He is going to postpone all those promises for the second coming. And that is hard for John to process, John the Baptist. And and it should have been. 
the announcements of the angels when, the, when Christ was born. You got to wonder if they knew about the postponement of the kingdom. They're announcing the birth of Christ. Gabriel's talking about all of the promises in Isaiah chapter 40 as though they're going to happen right now. And yet they don't. The kingdom was postponed. The consummation of the kingdom was postponed. So Christ dies, rises from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles go, well, I guess now we've gone through a lot. Maybe the Isaiah 53 thing is done. You've saved us from the penalty of our sin by being the living lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They ask the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it now? Are you going to consummate things now? Are you going to send the throne of David, your father? Are you going to bring peace and, and your government upon your shoulders is going to extend to the whole world? Is all flesh going to see your glory? Is now the time? And he says in verse 7, not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, their theology wasn't wrong. Their timing was wrong. They expected the coming consummation of the kingdom, and it made perfect sense. What they couldn't see is this huge valley between the advents that you happen to be living in, hopefully in the very end of it. But we're living between the advents because he says next, you know the next verse, right? You're going to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years, supposed to be doing, getting the gospel out to every concentric circle, starting with Israel and going to the ends of the earth. And until then, until every last person that God has elected and appointed to eternal life believes, trusts, repents, then we're waiting. But it'll happen, and it'll happen without warning. All right, presenting the gospel after the gospel. We're on the backside. Is it halftime? I hear the marching band. Number three, presenting the gospel after the gospels. You start in the book of Acts, and you start there with that picture in Acts chapter 1 of the plan. Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the heart of Judea. Judea, that's the region around Jerusalem. Samaria, that's the part there south of the Sea of Galilee where all the people from the northern tribes used to live. They all intermarried with the Assyrians. They, they lived there. And the ends of the earth, that's everywhere else. That concentric circle, those concentric circles create the outline for the book of Acts. And the problem is we often read the Gospels and the first part of Acts and we take the message of the Gospel and we rip it out of the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the first part of Acts and we try to share that with our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Mistake. Why? Because when the concentric circles reached non-Jewish people who didn't understand the kingdom the way the Old Testament presented it, because they didn't read the Old Testament, and they did understand the God of the Old Testament because they believed in many gods, multiple gods, then they had to stop and say, wait a minute, you've got to understand. We've got to go back and do some catch-up and talk a little bit here about the issue of God, who he is. And it begins that way, certainly in Athens, which is a lot more like Southern California or America or westernized modern life than Judah in the first century, Judea. Acts 17, he's there with the Athenians. They believe in multiple gods. They're polytheistic. They're idolaters. And look at the thing. He, he didn't start with Jesus loves you. He doesn't say Christ died for you. We saw that with Peter's preaching as he preached to the Jews because we can start there. They understood the God of the, of the Bible. They understood the kingdom promises. These people didn't. So what did he say? Well, I'm here to be witnesses to you. Get the relational, spiritual fix to your sin problem. Then the kingdom will come. But you need to know the God we're talking about. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, which is exactly what we pointed out in Genesis 1.1. Makes everything, has full authority. He himself, verse 25, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You are made by him. You are a steward of his. You are accountable to him. He gets to make the rules. You're supposed to follow them. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, here's his sovereignty, the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, and on it goes. God is a God in charge. He created us. 
That's why it's important for us to go back to the beginning in our own thinking, and even in our evangelism, because we have a whole society of people who don't believe that God created us. We better start with that. That's critical. You say, well, that's not where it started in Acts chapter 2. That's not the gospel of Acts chapter 4. That's not how Jesus preached in Luke chapter 15. I understand that. But that's because he's preaching to people that know the God of the kingdom, and they also know about the kingdom. Our, our audience doesn't. So they need to know about God being creator. They also need to know about the holiness of God, which was what so much of the first five books of the Old Testament were about. He is so holy. Your ceremonies need to reflect this. Even your animal that's going to be a picture of the transference of your guilt, you need to have him be that picture of a spotless, blemishless, young animal. That There's the picture of God's holiness, and you need to see it. And it needs to be reflected in your life. That needs to be the standard or the, the measure, the ruler of your life. So that you can even feel the transgression when you don't measure up. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A repeated phrase throughout the Bible multiple times. You're to be holy because God is holy. That means here my standard of conduct. I need to understand the God of the Old Testament reiterated in the New Testament. As Peter writes to his audience. He makes that clear. Paul writing to this very important city in Asia Minor, 2 Thessalonians, he speaks of God's justice. The reality of the fact that God isn't going to look the other way. He's not like Ben Carson and others that believe in uh, annihilation. Uh, This is the God of the Bible who says that when Jesus comes back with his mighty angels, he'll do it just like that Psalm 7 verses 11 and 12 speaks of with flaming retribution. He'll come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They weren't penitent. They didn't repent. They didn't put their trust in Christ. And they're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. There's the picture, the picture of an ongoing destruction, an ongoing corruption away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, you're a part of that group. There's going to be recompense, and there's, there's going to be in that recompense favor and reward, and there's going to be retribution and just punishment, and those are the things that are coming, and that's at stake. Eternal life or eternal punishment, that's how the Bible posits this, and that is reiterated in the New Testament so that Gentiles who need that Old Testament theology get it. And of course, God's love, which everyone's quick to assume about God, but certainly we want to affirm it as well. The only hope that we have is that God is a loving God. He makes very clear, thinking through the logic of the incarnation and the death of Christ. No one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Now that in the scale of things is up here, comparatively righteous, though perhaps for a good person now in their mindset, the Jewish mindset, that goes even higher. I mean, that's a wholly good person. One would even dare to die. So someone might scarcely perhaps die for a, a, you know, a righteous person, perhaps for a perfectly righteous person in their mind, an unbeatable, they might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, we weren't even close to the upper end of the scale. God saw us as who we were. Christ died for us. That's the expression of his love. He's willing to, to save the guilty. God is creator, holy, just, and loving. If you've been at this church more than 10 minutes, you've heard that from me. That is an important summary of what we see about the character of God throughout the New Testament for those who didn't have the advantage of the Old Testament. The problem, of course, is underscored. We're sinful people. New Testament spends a lot of time speaking of that. Romans chapter 3. Jews, they may be relatively, comparatively better in their own minds than the Gentiles, and you may be able to even objectively say, well, they seem to be lying less, stealing less, committing adultery less. That may be true, but the problem is we all fall short of the glory of God, and so we've all got the problem, for we've already charged, and he certainly did in the first two chapters, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. 
It is written, none are righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one seeks after God. And they're going to throw a flag on that plane and say, we do seek after God. Because of your sin, whatever God you're seeking after, there's the problem of your separation before God. You're not seeking the real God. There's no real uh, altruistic, sincere connection with the living God. That's the sin problem. God has to fix that. All have turned aside together. They become worthless. No one does good. And remember in the scale, that's the, up, that's the top word. No one does good, not even one. We're sinful. Problem is underscored in that we deserve punishment. Ephesians chapter 2 says we have a problem that so separates us from God. It's like someone with a dog that's dead. It may be in your physical presence, but there's no interaction. There's no relationship. There's nothing going on. And that's what it's like for sinners before a holy God. And we used to live, here's the irony of that statement, as a dead person. We used to live and walk around in our life with that state of alienation from God, following everybody else in this world, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's fallen. We're fallen. We acted just like he does. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, and he's certainly fanning the flame of sin in our culture and in fallen hearts, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. It may be in different culturally acceptable ways, but all of us living for ourselves, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So everyone has got a problem with God. They're born with that problem. They compound that problem. They store up wrath for the day of judgment. And the Bible says you need to recognize the just God puts the problem on your shoulders, on your account, on your ledger, and you deserve his punishment. That problem is underscored throughout the New Testament. Solution is clarified. This one that we spoke of is the mighty God and everlasting Father. Yes, it's interesting. How can the God who comes as the Prince of Peace be the one who is described with divine terms? Well, he himself is God, which is the mystery that a lot of people stumble over. How can God be contained in a person? That's why, you know, the, the uh, Muslims hate you theologically because you're, uh, in their mind, you've, you've made someone out to be God. They say frequently in their theology, God has no son. That's the, that, that's the thing they grate against. As monotheists, they'll say, you're not really monotheist if your God is triune. And yet that's the solution. A God with infinite value dying on behalf, not as a one-for-one transaction, but an infinitely worthy God dying for human sin, only in human form, that solves our problem. And of course, that's underscored in the New Testament, not just by the way Jesus receives worship, which would be blasphemous if he weren't God, not just by the way he controls nature, not just by the way he demonstrates the character, unique character of God's immutable attributes, non-transferable attributes, but in direct passages like this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and that's what we celebrate with the lights and the play this weekend after next, the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is God. Bible says that repeatedly in many different ways. Jesus lives and dies in our place. It's not very good to think about that animal living in our place. The focus is on him dying in our place, but certainly in the New Testament, the focus is on both. Jesus lives for us and Jesus dies for us. It's why he got baptized in a baptism of repentance when it was very clear he committed no sin and he was a spotless lamb. Why would the spotless lamb have to be baptized as though he were a sinner? Well, when he went up to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, no, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus responds, Matthew 3.15, Jesus answers John the Baptist says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I need perfect human righteousness credited to me. God does that in Christ by having him keep every requirement of what righteous people should do. And then, of course, he dies for us, for our sake. God, the Father, made him, Christ, his son, to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I need my sin forgiven. I need righteousness imputed. All of that takes place through the life and death of Christ. It's not an animal. The focus of our theology now goes not just in terms of our faith being directed at the Son, but our understanding of what that sacrificial system symbolized. Perfect human righteousness and my sin, human sin, accounted to his cross. And then, of course, this might be a surprise to you to learn that most of the verbiage in the New Testament gospel presentations, the majority share of those words usually focus on the resurrection. Not just because it was the most recent miraculous event of Christ in the time that they wrote these things, but because it really is the vindication of the transaction. If my sin is forgiven and the wages of sin is death, then I need to see death somehow reversed and conquered. And that's certainly what the Bible says happens. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18, if Christ has not been raised, then all of this trusting in God to forgive us, it's futile. My sins aren't forgiven. You're trusting for nothing, futilely. Verse 18, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, trusting in Christ, well, they perish. There's no hope for them. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ likewise partook of the same things, fulfilling perfect human righteousness, dying for human sins, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, not specifically and ultimately, but certainly as an agent, and delivering those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Real Christians should have the fruit of not having that enslavement to the fear of death any longer. He conquered death for us. That's what the resurrection was all about. The response was reiterated over and over in the New Testament. After the Gospels, we see that. Here's the beginning of the statement that we would just line up so many things under in terms of repentance and faith. They testified in the book of Acts to, and here's the apostle of the Gentiles, speaking of his evangelistic ministry, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Number one, to repent, of course. Let's be clear, and I almost didn't put this section in, but I thought, who knows? Maybe the seventh time you've heard it, and maybe that's what you need to be super clear in your own mind. Repentance, turning from sin to God, from self-directed life, self-gratifying life, living for myself. Second Corinthians 5.15 puts it that way. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for, there's the picture of repentance. I'm not going to live for this anymore. I'm going to live for that. What do we live for? We all born to live for ourselves and what advantages us. Now we're going to live for him who died for us and rose again. Living for ourselves, certainly returning from sin, which is all those things that are all about me, to God's agenda, God's direction. Here's a great picture, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. They themselves, the people that saw the conversion of the Thessalonians, they saw what kind of reception Paul and his apostolic band and the gospel had among those Thessalonians, how they turned to God from idols, and their life now is all about the agenda and direction of God, to serve the living and true God. And if that's not your heart, then I wonder what in the world you responded to in terms of the gospel. The gospel isn't to get an insurance policy. It is, in a very dramatic way, turning your whole agenda and focus around. I mean, we live in the world in our secular jobs or whatever you might do Monday through Friday, but you're doing it now under new management for the agenda of God following the direction of God's word in your life. Of course, faith is also reiterated in the New Testament. Our faith is specifically, as we already said, adjusted to the focal point of Christ. And Christ is the one that we need to trust in saves us. Unlike the sacrificial system, and this was a stumbling block for people coming from Old Testament to New Testament. If I wasn't trusting in the sacrifice because I realized that was a ceremony, maybe I should trust in my repentance or my faith. But the reality is, it's not just the response or the one who's providing it, but my focus needs to be on Christ specifically. For the sake of Christ, Paul, uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. I can't save myself. I'm going to gain Christ by this great exchange, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what I want. That's the reality, the exchanging of any hope of being able to save myself. And this is what most people don't get. That's why I added this at the last minute, thinking we should put it down, even though I would hope everyone in the room could explain it. I could give you the microphone, and you'd be able to discuss it. This is something you've heard countless times. But think about it. You ask your neighbor, are you going to be with God when you die, or do you think he'll reject you? They're going to say, I think he's going to accept me. And you can ask them why, and they're going to say what? Because I'm a pretty good guy. Because I'm better than people in San Bernardino who shoot other people. That's why I'm going to heaven. And the Bible says that's the exchange that needs to take place. My faith is not in what I do. My faith is in what he did for me. And of course, specifically, is the payment for my sin. I'm trusting that what actually happened there, unlike the sacrificial system, was not a ceremony. It was not a symbol. It was not a picture. It was not a formality. It was the actual transaction. It was the propitiation of God's justice that he actually was satisfied with the payment of Christ. And he was able to take my sin proverbially speaking, and nailed it to the cross. Christ suffered once for all, one time, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we would be reconciled. We may be brought to God. So the response was reiterated, repentance. By the way, if you're kind of new to the church, I don't know how new you are to the church, this is why we never want to use these stupid phrases about asking Jesus into our heart and all that stuff. You know that, right? Smile at me if you know that we deplore that kind of language because it's just, I think, one of Satan's subtle tools to obscure the repeated and chronic continual emphasis on repentance and faith. We've got to use the the words of Scripture or something, you know, turning and trusting, whatever you want to call it, so that we don't lose track of what God was trying to communicate to us. All right, instructions for gospel presentations. Now, we are required to take this message in the modern era to our generation, every generation since the apostles now. We're we're, we're told we've got to go out and do this. Why? Because until we see all the nations one to Christ, we know we we got a job to do. He said to the 11 that gathered there on the mountain, all authority on earth and heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all the nations. Well, all of that's been passed down. The baton has been handed to every successive generation because the job's not done. Making disciples of all the nations, we're not there yet. So we're going to keep going and saturating the world we're supposed to with the gospel, winning converts, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he said, I'm going to be with you always. And we know this is not just to the 11. Why? Because he says it right here to the end of the age. So the whole successive generations of the church are going to have the authority of God that's been given to them through Christ to bring the message of salvation to people. We call that evangelism. And it is required. If you feel a little guilt right now because you're not engaging in it, that's good. We are all commissioned to engage in evangelism. And when people told them to stop in the book of Acts, they said, we can't. Priests got together and said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name anymore. Speaking of Christ, you've filled all Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They understood it. This wasn't God loves you and wants to improve your life. They were saying your sins put him on the cross. They didn't like that message. And it's no different today. But Peter and the apostles answered, I know you want us to stop preaching this message, but we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. So we have proof that this thing worked the transaction of God on the cross, and we want to get back to preaching to you right now. Your sins put him there. You killed him. You hung him on a tree, and God exalted him in the right hand as, I love this, leader and savior. Maybe that's a good word we should reintroduce to our vocabulary about Christ. He is our leader, our leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And of course, this is still early on. The focus is in Jerusalem. It would be then not just Israel, but also Judea, Samaria, Gentiles, the end of the earth. Evangelism is required. Know that. 
It should be optimistic evangelism. And that means that you don't sit around going, well, no one likes this message anymore, so I don't know. I guess I'll check a box and do it. No, you need to be optimistic. Why? Because we believe in predestination, election, and God's calling of people. That, I know, discourages some people. I went to school with some people that were so discouraged about that. In practicality, they didn't want to do any evangelism because they thought, well, if God's going to save people, he's already got that figured out. He doesn't need me to do it, which is one of the things that delayed the work of missions, even in our modern era, because a lot of crusty old pastors said that to people who wanted to go reach people in foreign lands. Well, God, you know, he'll save people if he wants to save people. Of course, he's commanded us to evangelize. And we should say, wait a minute, if he's done that, then there are elect people out there. I need to go out there and share the gospel with them. And I love this verse. This is good. Verse 48, but let's start with verse 47 of Luke 13. So the Lord commanded us saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. Here's where the shift's taking place. That you may, from Gentile, Jew to Gentile, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Certainly the book of Isaiah spoke a lot about that. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing saying, great, we can be saved too. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe that ought to encourage you. If you have a high view of God's sovereignty, a high view of the fact that God has picked out people for himself, then sharing the gospel becomes an optimistic endeavor because I realize that motivates me. There's some elect people in your workplace. There's some elect people in your neighborhood. We want to keep sharing the gospel and uncover them. And we need to think about missions and we need to go beyond our our little circles here. They sang a new song in heaven. We're going to hear this and see this one day. Worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Christ in this heavenly scene, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed. You purchased people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. So the work needs to continue and we need to be optimistic knowing there are elect people all over the planet that we need to bring the message to. Needs to be prayerful, obviously. I know we talk about these things often in our teaching, but let's do it again. Jesus said, as he looked at the crowd, they're harassed, they're helpless, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He says to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, therefore get out there and get to work. Well, he is going to say that. He has said that. But now he says, here's something you need to do. You need to pray. Pray earnestly. This is a strong word to beg God, beseech God. The old translation used to put it, it's it's not just the word ask. It's the strong Greek word for beg God. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to, this is also a strong word, ekbalo, to, to throw out, to thrust forth, send out laborers into his harvest. There's a normal Greek word for send. This is the strong word, very graphic word of like throwing a ball out, shooting a cannonball down a barrel. I know that's anachronistic, but that's the idea, thrusting forth laborers into the harvest. So we need to pray for more people to be faithful to share the gospel. And then, of course, we want to pray specifically for fruit. We want to see conversions. We want to see people born again. Paul prayed that way. Certainly by example, he teaches us to do the same. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they might be saved. I want to see people repent and put their trust in Christ. Number three, we need to pray for opportunities. This is probably one of the things I get the most letters and notes about and people talking to me on the, on the patio about whenever I challenge people to pray specifically just for opportunities to share the gospel. So if you haven't heard that challenge from me lately, let me give it to you now. Based on this great example from Paul in Colossians 4, 3, and 4, at the same time, Paul says, after addressing their prayer lives, they pray for us that God may, I love this, open to us a door for the word. We want opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ on, on account of which I'm in prison that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So God swings some doors open this week. And certainly, as he, as he refers to the Philippians, the whole Praetorian guard ended up getting witness to because he's praying and having people pray for opportunities, and God's granting that prayer request. So pray for opportunities. Number four, this is the reason you and I choose not to do it sometimes. We're afraid. We're reticent. We need to pray for boldness. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul asked for this. You think he would need prayer for this? He does, and we do. 
Pray for me also that words might be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly, there's the key word, boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You get the idea he needs prayer to be bold, and we do too. That's a good little quartet of things for us to be praying for. You need to be strategic in your evangelism. The command in the same passage is this. Hey, now he speaks to them. Now, I want doors open and opportunities open to share the gospel. He says in verse 5, we've already quoted verse 4. Now, you guys, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, think about walking, peripateo is that Greek word for living, how you live your life. Live your life with wisdom. Think about it. Toward outsiders. When you interact with non-Christians, think about that. Making the best use of your kairos, not your chronos. I don't know why the ESV like to translate it this way. A lot of translations translate it opportunities. That's a better translation, I think. Making the most of, of your opportunities. The opportunities in time. I get that that's what it, the idea is, but the emphasis isn't on make the best. It's not a time management verse. This is about, I'm interacting with non-Christians. I want to be very thoughtful and strategic about how I interact with them. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I want it to make them thirsty. I want them to see something in my conversation. I want to engage them to where they want to talk more about it. So you may know how you ought to respond or answer. Engage would be a good way to think of this too with each person. So the command about him having open doors for the message of the gospel, he now says, you guys, when you're dealing with non-Christians, be strategic, be thoughtful, look for opportunities. Now that's the command. I just want you to write this down without any biblical proof because I knew I wouldn't have any time to go there. I just want you to think about this, and if I had time, I'd give you a lot of examples. Christ and the apostles. I've done this study. It's interesting. Just go through every time Christ shares the message of the forgiveness that's granted to people through God's grace. In other words, anytime Christ is going to talk about how to get someone reconciled to God, just find that passage and read it, and then look at the next one. Put them all on a Word document, lay them out, put them in an Excel spreadsheet if you're an accountant, and, and get them all side by side, and look at them. And do the same with the apostles, and you know what you're going to find out? No two evangelistic encounters were approached in the same way. It's different. Now, I know we teach a method because we want the content to be clear in our mind, and we went through some of that, but every time a conversation is struck up with someone who needs to be saved, needs their sins forgiven, the approach is different. Now, that's important for us to catch What does that mean? Colossians chapter 4, verse number 5. We need to be strategic, thoughtful about every opportunity, thinking about how we're going to go about it, using wisdom, seasoned conversation. Be strategic. Be integrous, obviously. Now, the context here may look like just teaching, and certainly some close contextual comments in Titus 2 would lead you to that. But the book, talking about the Cretans, there's a lot of people that need to be confronted with the truth and, and the gospel. And certainly this applies in that regard as well. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, here's where I get the idea of evangelism. I'm interacting with non-Christians so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I want that true about my evangelism, that they see my life. They can make up stuff, but I want them to see at least I'm living with integrity. Matthew 5, same idea here, which there is an evangelistic flavor to this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And here's what I want of those who see me. I want them one day to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But that means I'm going to be living in a particular way, integrous. I want to live a life that's above reproach. Tactful, tactful evangelism. When Paul was going to do some evangelism and and take some messages to these these, uh, synagogues and he's going to preach and preach Christ He takes Timothy along, who's an impressive young protege for him, and he had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. They thought, we know your dad. He's not a Jew. What are you doing in our our synagogue? You weren't circumcised as a child. He has that done. 
not like in Galatians where they were putting their trust in the ceremony, but he had that done out of a sense of being tactful in going to these people and making sure they didn't stumble over something that wasn't necessary for them to stumble over. They'll stumble over the message, but we want them stumbling over something that's not necessary for them to stumble over. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22 explains what went on in Acts 16. Though I'm free from all, he didn't have to be circumcising his protege. I've made myself a servant to all. I'm going to do that because it is going to advance the gospel, that I might win more of them. To the Jew became a Jew. Certainly he did that in the Acts 16 account. In order to win the Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law the way that they are. Trusting, for instance, in circumcision is the marks of being right and having favor with God. That's not how I do it. I just don't want them to stumble over that, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I came as, as one outside of the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Not the ceremonial law, but certainly the moral law, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that I might by all means win some. And that would be a question for you to look at yourself and say, how tactful have I been to make sure that when I open up my mouth about the gospel, I become someone who where I can adjust, where I can do something to help accommodate, I'll do that so that I don't unnecessarily become a roadblock to someone becoming a Christian. But then that would lead people to say, as many people do, well, then I'll just change the message. They don't want to hear about hell. They don't want to hear about, they don't want to hear about sin, so I'll just take all that out. You can't do that, of course. We need to be uncompromising in the message. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Context is people aren't listening to us. They're not responding. I could get discouraged. Maybe I should change my message. No, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We're not trying to trick people here. We're not willing to tailor the message just so they'll like it. We don't want to give them, have, these people have itching ears, as it says in Second Timothy. I don't want to give them just what they want to hear. I refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, now to speak to verse 1, I'm not discouraged. Why? Because even if I am rejected, I know this. It is veiled to those who are perishing. You want to flip that over? Go back to the Acts passage. And those who are responding, I know God has called people out in every place. He's got some people there, and they will respond properly. Uncompromising evangelism. I want to have reasoned evangelism. Some of us need to bone up a little bit on the logic of the gospel. We need to think through the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. We need to think through why we believe what we believe, not just what we believe. Acts 17, verses 2 through 4, Paul goes in, as was his custom, and on three-day Sabbath, he reasoned with them. There's a good word from the scriptures. Of course, that was their context. They cared about that. The Athenians cared about other things, so Paul's not quoting a lot of passages there, but he is quoting their own poets to try and underscore biblical truth. But to these guys, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and he was doing that from the scriptures. And he was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some were persuaded. What kind of people were they? Easily persuaded? No. The ones that were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas were among those, it says, a great many of the devout Greeks and a few of the leading women. These were the smart people, the leaders, the ones looked up to. And uh, he was persuading them, reasoned, rational. When he's in front of King Agrippa, you might remember in Acts 26, Festus gets all upset because he starts speaking of the supernatural event of the resurrection. He doesn't sweep that under the carpet. That's important. He shares it. Festus goes, you're crazy. And he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. There's some respect and, and some contextualization so he doesn't unnecessarily offend Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. There's a good word. King knows about these things. I speak to him boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. Now he's going to bring in some more rational argument because none of these things have been done in a corner. You've watched them. You've heard them. You've got to make something of these. 
There is reasonable, rational evangelism. You need to be responsive. And by that, I mean apologetic. Not apologetic in that I'm sorry for the message, but in the classical biblical sense that I'm going to be ready to give a defense. When people have an objection, I want to learn the defense of the gospel. You should go into our bookstore tonight and look through our apologetics section. There should be something there, I trust, that sparks your interest to say, yeah, I don't know how to defend that very well. I haven't thought through how to give an answer for that. I should honor Christ as Lord in my heart as holy, being prepared always to make a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in me, yet with gentleness and respect. There's back to that tactful evangelism that I talked about earlier. Letter J, I want it to be persuasive. Persuasion is something that's lost. I'm reading a book right now talking about the loss of persuasion in modern Christianity, and it's a bad thing, but we need to return to it. It's important. Oz Guinness book, Knowing the Fear of the Lord, We Persuade Others. Speaking of that encounter before King Agrippa, Acts 26, listen to the word here, King Agrippa's response. King knows about these things. I speak boldly. I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. This is not done in a corner. That's where we left off. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the, the prophets? I mean, that's persuasion, getting right there. What's your answer? What's your response? Who do you say that I am, as Jesus put it? I know that you believe. Now, I know you believe the scriptures. You believe what they wrote. And King Agrippa said to Paul, now I'm feeling pressure here. In a short time, you think you could just, in one afternoon, persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know I was getting into persuasion. I'm sorry. No, he says, whether a short time or a long time. Yeah, I, I would, to God, that not only you would be persuaded, but all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except it'd be good if you'd take me out of the handcuffs. All right, lastly, it should feel urgent to us. Remember we quoted this, the opening salvo from Christ preaching the good news to the people. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, he knew that this was just the first advent and the spiritual redemption to take place on the cross, and yet he's urgent about the message. You need to repent now. You need to believe in the gospel now, the good news of forgiveness. You need to have that as something you take care of today. As Hebrews 3, 7, and 8 says, quoting the Old Testament there, today if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Hebrews 3 and chapter 4 are great, repeating that three times, the idea of today, if you'd hear his voice, don't put it off. Today's the day of salvation. Get it done. Respond now if you feel that conviction. And I love this word, the word implore, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're ambassadors for Christ, making God, making his appeal through us. If it's godly evangelism, look at it. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's persuasive and it's urgent. It's something that needs to get done now. Some people in hearing this, knowing that I've tried to underscore the fact that we need to do evangelism, let me spend the last minute and a half here reminding you of two resources that I've written that I'd love for you to go to our bookstore and grab. I know many of you have this one, and that's great. This is the one that you should read and, and, and get familiar with. And you can read this book, and I wrote it in a way where you can just go to a chapter and say, I just need to bone up on that particular topic. Got a chapter on the bad news, chapter on the good news, chapter on repentance, faith, good works, how they fit into all that, chapter on God and his foundational attributes. So that's a little, I don't know how many pages that is, 100, 133 pages, small little book. This is the book you should have a few of, and you should hand these out. And these are just the, the workbook. Basically, it's a remake of the first chapter of the partner's manual. If you read this, get this in your mind, look for open opportunities and pray for them and utilize this and say, hey, why don't you work through this and let's just get together at this coffee shop and we'll talk about it. It, it can be that simple as an opening tool to do evangelism. Now, you oh, Mike, the bars, you're selling your books. I've donated all this printed material to the church. I make no money on this. So you go to the bookstore and you buy a thousand copies, the church will be happy, I suppose. Although they're priced so cheap, it just basically pays for most of our printing on this. But I, I don't make any money on this. That's why I can recommend it to you without 
feeling like I'm lining my own pockets with this. Not to mention that most people don't make much money with writing. But I make zero money on that. Have I made that clear? I'm just trying to make it clear so that if I push these on you, I just want to give you things that I know are going to be in keeping with the teaching that you get here at the church, getting it right and exploring the gospel. They're in the bookstore, which is always open on Thursday night.